I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The first time we saw him in this book, I was like, I am climbing into the book to kill you right now. Like, how dare you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Monster Donut, a literary and historical deep dive into the Percy Jackson series and all of its following spin-offs. I'm Phoebe, a dramaturg and story consultant. I am Emily, a classic scholar-ish and writer. And today we're joined by a very special guest, our first guest on the podcast. Woo. We have Woo. Fran from the Best Damn Camp. Hi there. Wait, why did I do an accent? I'm English. Don't do that. Why, Fran? Why? <laughs> why? That's the one thing about me. No, actually, you have to be American now. This is no, an American podcast. Yeah. You know the Sorry, rules. we forgot to mention. <laughs> <laughs> so this week, we're going to be talking about the Titans Curse. But first, Fran, do you want to do a quick uh, intro? What you are, what you are, who you are, <laughs> what you do. So what I am is a mess. <laughs> um... <laughs> so I'm Fran. I also run a Percy Jackson podcast. I'm actually going into my third year of running the best damn camp at the moment which is very exciting um i am well known as being one of the most hated person jackson podcasters because i do not hold back a thing i am also an author my debut novel published earlier this year it's a tarzan sapphic adventure story which is the first in a series 
Um, their second book is coming out next year in the summer. I also have a Celtic mythology series starting next year as well, which is also very, very exciting. Um, uh, everything's sapphic, by the way. So if anyone is looking for sapphic stuff, Always. what's up? <laughs> um, and uh, I also run a YouTube channel for Percy Jackson and other content called A Healthy Dose of Fran. I am also one of the most hated Percy Jackson YouTubers in the world. <laughs> We're not holding We back. love consistency ap- across your platforms. <laughs> And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that's all about me. I'm Chaos Incarnate, and I am very sorry for what I'm about to say on this podcast. <laughs> okay, well then let's say it. Let's, let's get into the Titan Scars. I was so excited to come back to this book. And the Titan Scars and I have a special relationship because when I was first reading it when I was in middle school, it was the only Percy Jackson book I owned for a while. And I went on a road trip because we went, we would drive from Connecticut to Chicago every year um, over the summer. And I would bring like a crate of books with me in the backseat. It's a 14 hour drive that we usually do in one day. America is so big. (laughs) I I was like, you know, maybe I'll read a book. And I picked up uh, The Titan's Curse, which I had already, I don't think I'd read it at that point. And I read it cover to cover, closed it and was like looking at the rest of my books and was like, I kind of just want to read more Percy Jackson. That was really good, but I don't have any other Percy Jackson. And then I just reopened The Titan's Curse on page one and read it again. <laughs> and then I finished it and was like, you know, and just went back to page one. <laughs> and I think I read it like four times in a row. <laughs> wow. Maybe more. So I like this book was indelibly imprinted on me for a very long time. It's good road trip material. It's yeah. every book is a road trip. True, true. Quite literally in this one, because they do actually get to have mm-hmm. a car for a period of time. Yeah. yeah. I was surprised at how little they were sabotaged in their transportation this time around, like compared to like Lightning Thief. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like they took a train successfully at one point. And <laughs> so we start out in the middle of winter for the first time. It's December, and Thalia, Annabeth, and Percy are headed to. Westover Hall, which is a school in Maine where Grover has just found two powerful half-bloods, Nico and Bianca D'Angelo. Yeah, and for me what's interesting of this book is there's there's a couple like pretty relatively minor, but like I think very significant tone shifts in this introduction. Number one is like the shift because we're no longer following the model where we like we start at the beginning of summer, Percy goes to camp. We we've shifted. We're now starting in the middle of a year. So it hasn't even been like a full year since the last book happened. And also we're kind of starting like we last left Thalia. She just woke up. And now all of a sudden we've skipped over a good several months of time in which they all were like reconnecting and getting to know each other, which we the reader have missed. So it's kind of a jarring shift where we're like all of a sudden Thalia is part of the team. But I think it really works because Percy still feels that disconnect. So you kind of also get it too. I think there's also the additional tonal shift from Percy's voice in that for the first opening, we're kind of getting him being a bit resentful. And a bit mm. frustrated that he is no longer the number one. Because, yeah. I, sorry, I say Talia. <laughs> so you're going to get two different pronunciations of the name. Here. It's, it's fine. <laughs> we say it two different ways half the time. <laughs> okay, so that's, that's fine. <laughs> like, Grover is looking to Talia. Annabeth and Talia have been having more time together. She's been training more with Chiron because, no offense to Percy, she's put the time in. He mm-hmm. does it 
six weeks yep. over the summer. <laughs> Boy, get an education with Chiron if you don't want to feel left out. <laughs> so it was also just very interesting having that open up of like we've we're kind of left behind a little bit, like you, like you were saying of we're missing some information. There's this time skip with a new character that's connected to us, but also yeah. opening up with Percy no longer, in a sense, feeling like the number one person in the story because Talia mm-hmm. is the one leading things and he's not happy about it like very visibly unhappy about it and we're feeling this resentment yeah. which is a really interesting change for Percy because even though we know and have seen like his darkness of you know hating Luke and some conflict with Annabeth this is the first time we're kind of really seeing him dislike someone or somewhat dislike someone who's literally done nothing wrong except be better than him yeah and it it's also interesting too because a big thing we talked about for a sea of monsters was how like the whole book it really doesn't feel like percy's the main character and it feels like he's okay with that but here there's a shift it's because there is now a power imbalance because thalia has taken his place in the group because Mm -hmm. she is the exact same person as him Uh, yeah just with a bit more training a bit more training and i think Chiron says that she is more confident or like trust herself more i can't remember the exact Mm. line sure i think it's more self-assured or sure of herself yeah Mm. yeah yes that's what it is Karen's just like i would not send that i would not have chosen to send dolly on this mission she's way too impulsive and self-assured and Fritz like so you would have sent me instead he's like no (laughs) (laughs) some self-awareness no i would not (laughs) like no percy you're worse (laughs) Yeah. yeah thalia's reintroduction to this series is a fun one because we've kind of built our own myths about her throughout the series so far she's been like totally mythic living only in dreams and stories and now she's all of a sudden flesh and bone but at the same time i think she keeps a lot of that otherworldly quality to her like Mm -hmm. especially at the beginning of the book percy describes her as often standing so still that you would think she was still a tree and also describes her when she's standing alone in the snow as looking like a massive raven in the white landscape um and like the first time we see her she's just this violent force of nature so she's still there's still something sort of massive about Thalia even though she's standing in front of us now Mm. Mm. I think that also is what I I like about the disconnect too is you don't have the humanizing you don't have the moments as a reader where you've seen her be like a flesh and like a real person yet so you kind of are still stuck in this myth whereas Percy and Annabeth because they've been with her they wouldn't be anymore because they know her yeah yeah so I also want to flag this because I want to talk about it because this is also a bit of a bookend moment in this book that I thought was really interesting, which is um, once Sally drops uh, Percy, Annabeth, and Thalia off at the school in Maine, Thalia, I think, says to him, like, oh, your mom is so cool, which it, it's really interesting coming off of the diary of Luke Keston and reading that line because Luke and Thalia, they're kind of the two half-bloods where they too had to become basically like the caretakers of their parents, their mortal parents. Mm-hmm. And they've kind of really had to step up in a way that even like Annabeth hasn't. And interestingly though, Bianca, I think is the next closest to them, which I yes. want to talk about. Yes. But like Thalia talking about how lucky Percy is to have Sally, it really reminded me where Thalia is coming from in this story at this point mm. and you know what her relationship with her parents like and we learn even a little bit more about it later too so just wanted to flag that mm-hmm. yeah um, i also i want to put a pin in the tone shift that you brought up because mm-hmm. that is like a massive part of the book 
um, yeah. that I want to talk about as we keep going through the book. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, but so they, there's a monster. They have to get around. They have to rescue these two kids that Grover's found. And their brother and sister, Bianca, is 12. Nico is 10. And we first meet our sweet baby Nico D'Angelo. And he's just a kid that's really into mytho magic to the point that he annoys everybody else. <laughs> he's so me as a child with my Pokemon cards. <laughs> I was literally just about to say Pokemon cards, Yu-Gi-Oh, Digimon. I mean name it <laughs> what was really striking to me is like coming back to like 10 year old nico who hasn't had to deal with all of the events of this book yet mm-hmm. he's so innocent i hadn't really noticed until this reread that he was kind of the opposite of bianca in that he's kind of feisty and talks back and like has no filter <laughs> and no real concept of danger or consequences it's just Mm-mm. full childlike wonder at everything and like he hardly ever worries about anything outside of his sister and it's because Bianca is doing the worrying for Mm -hmm. him because she is the adult in the relationship I found what really interesting reading this back as well is that Bianca is almost the epitome of what Nico becomes like after everything that happens of Mm. quite quiet a little solemn not like fully but like the middle stage between it of just like she is just really quiet she is beyond her brother very solitary she does like she's the one who's kept them aside from everyone like she's kept them isolated from other people which is then something that nico himself goes on to do i don't think it's like the Mm -hmm. perfect one for one but it always made me wonder if like part of nico started to kind of match what his sister used to do which is by keeping them Mm. safe, by keeping them as just the two of them. But because he doesn't have her anymore, he keeps just to himself because Mm. he thinks that's what his sister would do. Yeah. Mm. She's very wary all the time, very perceptive and like constantly trying to think of how they're going to fight their way out, asking what the plan is in these opening chapters. And she's also really adaptive and malleable. She's definitely sort of... (laughs) To me, I was I was thinking she's kind of like the perfect final girl material. Mm. She would definitely survive a horror movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or she should have been the person that survived a horror movie. Uh, it turns out she obviously isn't. Oh. Oh. But yeah, she has a lot of those qualities that we will see in Nico mm. down the line. I feel like that's kind of mm. half of what led him down that path. Because like the only time we kind of see Bianca in a mm. different light is when she has shirt all of the weight of the loss of their mum the responsibility of her brother and all that sort of stuff by joining a group of people who care about her, who respect her, who give her this confidence. And she Mm. does change a little bit more. Like She still keeps like those parts of her personality of, you know, seeing where things are going, being adaptive, all this sort of stuff. But she's happier because she's lost Mm -hmm. that weight of like, she's done what Nico takes a really long time to find a way to shirk off all that past trauma. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's it's in the way that they approached family because for Bianca, she had been defined by her family mm-hmm. for her entire life in her role as a caretaker. And that's what ultimately leads her to join the Hunters is this promise of like mm-hmm. a new family free of responsibility, which for Nico, Bianca is his only home. And so without her, he'd have nowhere and no one to return to. And he doesn't have that sort of responsibility shackling him there. It's more mm-hmm. just a, a sense of, well, that's my that's my home. Yeah. So when he loses that, it's a different kind of loss. Yeah. It's very much the sort of parent-child relationship to a degree of Bianca 
holding the responsibility, holding the weight of his safety on her mm-hmm. shoulders. And he's just kind of taking it. He's not doing anything in return. Like, mm-hmm. lots of parts, like, after they nearly die <laughs> and they watch someone else die, or, well, quote-unquote die, um, mm-hmm. he's more he's excited. Like, he's not actually worrying about mm-hmm. their safety, worrying about all that sort of stuff. That's all completely on Bianca's shoulders. And he's not kind of really reacting to her anxiety. He's just mm-hmm. really excited. And, like, you can kind of, like, you've got that parent-child relationship of, like, she's just going to take all that on. He's going to have the time of his life. Mm-hmm. And it's just, yep. it's that embrace aspect of it of he doesn't kind of and this is not this is not me intending to like dunk on nico or like child nico but like no. he, he was a 10 year old ten year olds are selfish and like in this case he is acting selfishly yeah. but you know he's a kid of course he's going to so he's mm. more excited about engaging with other people finding out about what they do all this sort of stuff and not realizing that Bianca is freaking out, Bianca is panicking, Bianca is, and all these sort of things, which then lead to her choosing to join the hunters because she's scared yeah. and she doesn't want to have the weight of responsibility of someone else's safety on her shoulders mm-hmm. because she knows she can't do it because these are otherworldly forces that she has no way to deal yeah. with. Yeah. I think also what's really interesting about Nico and his introduction is like up until this point, all of the characters we've been introduced to who are half-bloods, they're all a little jaded before they find out they're half-bloods already because they've all had issues, be there be, 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 be like in school or with monsters or really close calls. Nico is, I think, the only half-blood we've seen, at least up until this point, where he has none of that baggage. He's just really excited, and it's, like, his favorite thing ever coming to life, basically. But, like, his journey over the course of this book is having to come to terms with the realities of it, I think. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to me that, considering, well, down the line, who Nico is, like, that this is his starting point. Like if he was writing this book, you know, he wouldn't be like, "Look away, don't, don't, uh, don't read this." He'd be like, "Okay, so <laughs> get this." I feel like he's kind of coming from the same place that a lot of the readers were probably coming from. And that mm-hmm. you know, yeah, the the kids picking up these books were likely Greek myth nerds. Yeah, and then he has to go through that transformation. And this book is the transformation point for the readers as well, because this book mm-hmm. is a start of the reality of the life of a mm-hmm. demigod. Like the previous books, like mm-hmm. they had their bad moments and dark moments, but in comparison to the Titan's Curse, they get off pretty easy. This is yeah. where like things really go down. Things aren't exactly exciting anymore because there's danger quite literally around every corner. Yeah. Tonal shift. Yeah, I mean, if if we're bringing it back to the tone shift, <laughs> I actually think that there's a moment at the end of the book that marks the completion of the tone shift. Like we have officially sh- shifted tones that we'll get to later. But mm-hmm. the use of this third book as a shift in tone and like a point of no return is like super common in Rick's books. Mm-hmm. And this is something that Emily and I have talked about outside of the podcast, but it's very Shakespearean of him. (laughs) (laughs) Five-act structure, baby. Yeah, in these five books here, we're kind of working in a five-act structure, like a Shakespeare play, and the act three tone shift and point of no return, like you see it in uh, Julius Caesar with Caesar being killed in act three. Wait, that's how Julius Caesar ends? (laughs) What? Oh my god, Mean Girls was right! (laughs) 
We should go be <laughs> Romeo <laughs> kills Kibble in Act 3. Hamlet decides not to kill Claudius while he prays and ends up accidentally killing Polonius, which again sets mm-hmm. them down that path. And like, it's like more often than not, whether it's a comedy or tragedy or history, there is a tone shift or a point of no return or both in Act 3. And in this series, Act 3, The Titan's Curse is both at the same time. Mm. Something else that I noticed, I did not notice this when I was reading this when I was a kid, but now grown-up Emily is reading this like, huh. Prior in the series, it's sort of either directly stated and implied, I think both, that the satyrs are there to go recruit half-buds and protect them, basically to protect them, to bring them to a safe place to camp and to keep them safe from the monsters that are going to inevitably come after them. In this book, the reason why Grover is on this mission as opposed to going to find Pan, which is like what he was able to start doing after the events of the Lightning Thief, is because they're basically on an all-hands-on-deck emergency recruitment mission because they're losing a lot of half-bloods because they're joining Luke's side. And I found that really interesting. Also, in the light of the fact that they, Bianca and Nico are at a military academy. And it made me think about what they're doing in terms of recruitment is the exact same thing that they're kind of villainizing Luke for. It's like, oh man, he's like he's getting demigods to join his side. He's he's recruiting for his army. These poor kids, they're they're only kids, and yet they're doing the exact same thing. Yeah. I felt like having them staying at a military academy really solidified that for me, where it's like, oh no, what you're about to just go to a different military academy. And the fact that that's not really address because this is the thing that I always felt Percy Jackson as a whole was lacking is that why is Luke's side bad beyond the Titan problem because Mm -hmm. he's right (laughs) the gods (laughs) suck us like they don't care about their kids they don't care about anything except themselves why do we care for them (laughs) like why are we fighting for them and that's not like I don't feel like that's ever addressed except at the very end of the last mm-hmm. book with a small little line and it's this mm-hmm. kind of like how did we get to this where where is the critical thinking <laughs> i know it's children <laughs> children can critically think yeah 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 no i'm i'm 100 with you i think luke is 100 yeah. right in his speech although i as we kind of i think talked about in our first episode it's it's also luke looks to the past instead of the future to find you know a better idea and i think that ultimately is where that's kind of i think his mistake yeah that i can see i think the only thing i ever wanted and like this is one of the main books that i feel this and the next book could have had the addressing from percy of the points that luke is making because Mm -hmm. some Mm -hmm. huge important things happen in this book and i'm just like percy this is the evidence you're looking for for why mm-hmm. Luke is doing the things he's doing. Because, like, I just want Percy to say, look, Luke has a point. He's just going about it the wrong way. Just so there's exact words, Percy, please. <laughs> there was a line later on, like, skipping ahead, that made me pause, though, like, kind of mm-hmm. relating to this conversation, when Percy and Mr. D are fighting. And Percy gets really angry and says, this is your civilization, too. Mm-hmm. Maybe you should try helping out a little. But they're not arguing about civilization. They're arguing about Annabeth being lost. Mm. And I thought it was really, it was something I hadn't seen before of him taking something small and connecting it to the bigger picture. And it kind of betrayed that like, 
oh, we're all 100% anti the way Luke thinks here, that Percy is beginning to tie the gods' actions to their impact on the greater civilization. And yeah, it's, it's almost like the beginning of a change in his way of thinking without him outwardly acknowledging it or even like realizing that it's happened. Yeah. Okay, so basically they, they get into a counter with the Manticore, who is the monster that is working at the school. All seems lost, and then all of a sudden, the hunters of Artemis show up. I, I wrote down, I wrote this down, I just thought it was funny, where I completely forgot that Zoe and Thalia had beef. So. <laughs> it is interesting to me, though, because it kind of keeps circling back to how she was offered this chance, and she turned it down because of Luke to join the hunters. And it's implied that like Zoe and Thalia have like a lot of beef. Like it's not just like that she said no. It was like there was there there had to have been a whole thing that happened where they just hate mm. each other. I don't care what anyone says. He wrote the perfect like tragic enemies to lover arc. Like I you did it, Rick. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. I second the motion. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like it's not it's like he did this thing he does this all the time we were talking about this especially in the heroes of olympus series he will perfect like he perfectly writes the experience of like being a queer woman and yeah. then is like no she's not queer and like no like, <laughs> i don't know how he does it but he does it he per- he nails it absolutely yeah. nails it so ironically he only does it with the girl characters the guy characters there are some moments but it's really sporadic but every single interaction between two girls it makes me wonder like if joining the hunt is something that i think thalia maybe did want to do but like wasn't ready to leave behind luke and like this idea that maybe you know her dad would like finally be there for her in a way and i feel like the ending of this book then it feels comes full circle to me because we've watched two other characters, both Bianca, who's kind of parallel to her a little bit, see her make the decision that Thalium would have made when she was the same age as Bianca. Oh, they do fully parallel each other because B- Zoe thought Bianca could one day become the lieutenant. Like leader, mm-hmm. the lieutenant, yeah. and Talia ends the book by becoming a hunter because she wants to not have the responsibility of being the chosen one, and then yeah. becomes the lieutenant. Which is also which is also something Bianca technically unintentionally did because she would have been the other chosen one because as we mm-hmm. find out at the end of the book, she is a child of Hades and she could have also been a child of the prophecy. Yeah. Uh-huh. So we we get saved by the hunters. Oh although on a- Annabeth is kind of kidnapped. On the Annabeth topic as well, something else I wrote down kind of coming off the diary of Luke. I said Castellan. Go for it. It's fine. Say whatever you want. <laughs> I was wondering how much responsibility Thalia feels for Annabeth because at the end of his diary you know he goes on a lot about how he really feels like he's dad like he's responsible he really is the protector and I was wondering like how that extended to Thalia because we don't get her point of view yeah Luke kind of imposes that uh family structure onto their little group yeah very patriarchal of him and I I actually do think that Thalia probably didn't think of their group like that mm. like I can't really imagine her I I think of her more as thinking of herself as an older sister to Annabeth and I don't even know if Annabeth felt that way about her family I think it was just Luke <laughs> yeah she probably feels bad that she's been without her for so long mm. and that they've been without each other for so long but I don't know if she feels any responsibility towards her beyond friendship 
Talia comes from a complicated family background. She won't yeah. think of anything like a family. She will think of them as the closest friend she can she could have because family for her is a very complicated and very mm-hmm. messy thing. Whereas yeah. Luke and Annabeth were looking for a new family. Like obviously yeah. Annabeth is still thinking of them as older siblings, but she's still thinking of them as siblings. I think you really hit on the difference between Thalia and Luke as well. Because both of them, again, there had to be taking on these caretaker roles. And I feel like for Luke, that kind of became a part of who he is. But for Thalia, that's not. Yeah. She's definitely not the caretaker role. She's the supportive Mm -hmm. presence, but she's not a caretaker. She's just like, I cannot do that again. Yeah. The difference between Thalia and Luke in that respect, to me, feels like it has to be one of the the main reasons why Luke is the villain of this series instead of Thalia. Yeah. And it's interesting that that difference is probably in a large part like the responsibility he feels as a caretaker of these kids. Yeah. Hmm. He feels responsible and sad for them for like what they've gone through. Because like Hmm. he's one of the eldest and he's head of Hermes cabin. He's seen these kids feel abandoned, feel Mm -hmm. let down and probably heard them cry at night for their parents and all these sort of things seen other kids like annabeth who've been kicked out by their mortal parents because Mm -hmm. of what the gods have done and what the the stress that's come with it and he's probably just taken that like luke to me is like a super empath Mm. who's then internalized that so much that it's become hate because of all the pain that he's taken on from others there was nowhere for it to go except to stay there and like churn round and round and round until all he could feel after that is resentment and anger and the only way for that to go is towards the people who caused it which then leads him down that darker path luke is such an interesting character yeah he's so <laughs> uh, so where are we right now they they've gotten to camp there's a quest to save artemis percy is not part of the quest but he jailbreaks with blackjack my favorite yeah. character <laughs> And they're following, um, but he gets stopped on the Chrysler building in New York City by Mr. D. I want to break this scene down fully, I think, because it's a very interesting Mm -hmm. scene. I have thoughts on this one, too. Basically, Mr. D traps Percy with vines to keep him from following and threatens to (laughs) throw him off the building. Yeah. (laughs) Percy gets angry because, of course, he does and asks, Mm -hmm. why do you hate me so much? What did I ever do to you? And Mr. D's reasoning is that percy is a hero and he needs no other reason and so when percy continues to protest mr d tells him the story of ariadne being left behind by theseus his point is that you heroes never change you accuse us gods of being vain you should look at yourselves you take what you want use whoever you have to and then you betray everyone around you so you'll excuse me if I have no love for heroes. They are a selfish, ungrateful lot. Ask Ariadne or Medea. For that matter, ask Zoe Nightshade. And then he lets Percy go. <laughs> so my biggest question also reading this scene is like, what is the turning point here? Like, why does he show up and then let Percy go? Yeah, I feel like mm-hmm. he shouldn't have let Percy go. Because it's the letting go. Oh, actually, no. Oh, oh, thought, feelings, questions. Mm-hmm. I feel like Dionysus lets him go to try and see if he can prove him wrong. I feel like Dionysus, because Dionysus was a hero himself. He was a hero who became a god. And I think he wants to be proven wrong. Because I feel like he thinks about himself in this way as well. Like he thinks that he was selfish and self-absorbed even when he was a hero. And he fears that he hasn't changed himself either. 
I is he actually? I thought he was the son of an. Yeah, he was a demigod because his father was Zeus, and then his mom was some some Oh, yes, you're right. Then, you're right. Yeah, his mom was mortal, but she died. Okay, I he died yep. and he was born from Zeus's thigh. Yeah, but that was something that that was exactly what I was going to bring up is that he grew up among mortals and was a demigod himself. And most of his stories are him like wandering or traveling the world like Percy and the rest of the heroes do. Like he he's very like he even has the quest into the underworld to try and save his mom. Like he is the hero when he was a mortal. Yeah. When he was a mortal. <laughs> and interestingly enough, he had a lot of people in his life who died because of his own actions. Not like not like he killed them, but like he was in a sense responsible for their deaths because he was irresponsible. And I always half wonder if things like that is why he resents heroes even further, because he hoped they would have changed. Like by this period of time, yeah. they wouldn't be as as selfish and self absorbed, and so I think that's kind of half why he then does let Percy go because like I feel like he just wants to hope, like even though he's so like he he's he's a grumpy bastard, but like <laughs> I I feel like he hopes that one day there will be a hero who will be different. Yeah, like he has that unique perspective as someone who was once mortal and is now immortal and is watching mm. time pass through that lens. And so, yeah, probably is watching all of these kids end up just like he was or just like the heroes were in the old days. Mm. We're breaking the sort of perfect image of the ancient heroes. Mm. Yeah. Especially that we haven't really questioned until now, I don't think. And I think this is, for me, the central theme of this book, because we talked about in in the Sea of Monsters, the central theme being abandonment of the gods to the mortals. But in this book, I think the central theme is also abandonment, but it's the other side, where it's the abandonment of heroes to the people who love them. Generally, usually the women who love them, but not always. And I think this is the scene that really sets that up because the story of Ariadne is that. And Medea as well. You know, it's like you give up everything to help them in their quest and they just leave you behind when the story is over. Yeah. I think it's also just beyond that this book is dealing a lot with the relationship between the mortal world and the mythical world with the Titan army working with so many mortals and like having that added threat of like there are guns now and helicopters (laughs) and like it has the threat has officially traveled into the mortal world. And we also have with the introduction of Rachel Elizabeth Dare our first mortal character who has had to engage with this world after Sally. And like, it's especially interesting that Ariadne is being brought up for reasons we'll get into in the next book. Oh yeah. But yeah, it's that relationship between the mortal world and the mythological world and the ways that they are now having to intersect, but are also the godly world is so often pushing it to the side. Like we've talked about in the past, like it, mm. it's so often doesn't consider what's going on in the mortal world like i that moment with rachel kind of shocks percy because mm-hmm. he's suddenly like supposed to acknowledge that there are human people around him <laughs> that he has to interact with oh, and then there's a moment in um colorado where the skeletons show up and they have guns and they shoot at percy and he deflects a bullet with his sword oh god yeah <laughs> and i was just like what (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm going to say, I feel like that's one thing. I'm just kind of like, Rick, come on now. Because, like, if monsters can use guns with no problem, why can't anyone else? <laughs> like, like, why aren't they all using them? Like, why aren't Cyclopses having, like, machine guns on them at all the time? Why aren't all monsters who have two hands or yeah. even multiple hands using them to kill demigods if they can use them? Because, like... There's, you know what's interesting, too, is that, like... The Romans had artillery. Like, this isn't even that modern. Like, the Romans had basically the equivalent of ballistas. Ballistas, for those who don't know, it would be that weapon they used to kill the dragons on Game of Thrones. I don't know either of these things. <laughs> oh, like how to train a dragon. Like, what? It's the sort of. Oh, uh, okay. Thank you. Thank you. That's, like, that's what I like need. It's a giant crossbow. It's, a gi- it's basically a giant crossbow. That sort of vibe. Just hiccups didn't have the crossbow part, it was just ropes. <laughs> But like what Hiccup made. (laughs) But the Romans had this. They had artillery, is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) No. What we're trying to say is give Medusa a gun. (laughs) (laughs) This is America. Like... <laughs> oh wait, hold on. That's so dark. Because, like, admittedly, <laughs> we're just we're skipping ahead so much. We're skipping around so right? much. This is not in order at all. Let's. <laughs> We can skip to the junkyard. Yeah, let's talk about the junkyard. We finally get to the realm of Hephaestus, who is one of the few gods we have not met yet at this point. Although Hephaestus has had a lot of, like, you know, in the first book, he uh, was on the the Tunnel of Love ride. Um, Yeah, he's referenced quite a bit. He always has, he keeps having these traps, like in in Sea of Monsters, they also pass his forages. Like he's kind of a presence in all of these books. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And in this one, obviously, it's probably the most consequential. Yeah. It's also like a bit of a microcosm, I think, of his presence in the series at this point of just like all of these things lying around that he made, but like without him there. Yeah. Mm. Each of these quests have had a moment where he's, just kind of looming and you're waiting for him to finally make his first appearance and he still hasn't done it (laughs) no he hasn't but from an archaeological perspective most of the things we find are things that have been thrown away or discarded because most of the stuff that would be in daily use is destroyed along with the people that made them or is used to the point where it kind of no longer is salvageable so it always makes me think a little bit about that. Like we we know so much about ancient civilizations because of their trash. But we do get once again instead of Hephaestus in the place of Hephaestus we get Ares and Aphrodite. They give they warn them telling them not to take anything. Right. But Bianca does. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah, so she takes the only statue her brother doesn't have. Hades. And I do kind of want to talk about how that ultimately is her downfall. Because I feel like we don't get a lot of information about Bianca as a character in this book. I feel like I always look at Bianca like with other people. Like why I was talking about like the Bianca Thalia parallels and stuff. Because I feel like her story isn't complete because you do have to read between the lines a lot. Like you get Percy's version of it. And I think because thematically as well so much like I said I I thought coming away like the big theme of this book was like heroes leaving behind the people that love them and that is what she does at the beginning of this book you know she chooses to leave behind her brother I think she kind of ends up it's sort of connecting to what Dionysus was saying about the selfishness of heroes which is kind of annoying because I don't like I feel like that's not exactly what she was 
doing. Mm-mm. She's like, yes, of course, she is in a sense acting somewhat selfishly because she's yeah. thinking of what's best for her. But she's not abandoning Nico. No. She's being told that there is a place for them to go. There is a place that they will be safe. There is a place that Nico, a child, can be cared for by someone who is not a child. She's acting, in a sense, in Nico's best interest. Yeah. In her mind, she's probably leaving Nico in a better situation and finding one that's good for her as well, where mm. the responsibility and safety of her brother is not solely on her shoulders because she can't protect him. I think you're totally right. And I also think like she's tempted by at first like a really pretty bow, which is ultimately just like something that's cool, but not meaningful. And she's able to leave that behind. But the thing that she's not able to leave behind is such a tiny inconsequential. It, But it, it means it's something that would mean the world to Nico. And she knows it like that really shows she is like who she is to Nico. And she is the big sister that always is like. I think that is very emblematic of her character and that's how I think of her. And is it misguided? Yes. It's you shouldn't do that. Like you were told not to do it, but like Yeah. She's younger than all of them. Yeah. She lost twelve. Yeah. I mean we, yeah. we excuse Percy for being twelve and it's worth excusing. I think we need to also excuse Bianca for being twelve. She is twelve. Yeah. Uh-huh. The fact that Bianca is twelve and dies in this scene. It's part of that tone shift that we were talking about earlier, the kind of realization that children can die in this series, which is like not true of a lot of middle grade books. Maybe like parents can die, adults can die, but like a 12 year old, someone younger than me. And I do think there's like an escalation also of the deaths in this book because I I was interesting, like the disappearance of Annabeth, because they couldn't quite figure out like if they were supposed to mourn her or not, like if she was gone for real. It is an interesting narrative trick to Mm. subvert expectations because he sets the expectations at the beginning of the book of like, no, death isn't on the table. And then and mm. then Mm -hmm. and then he kind of is like, actually, fun story. (laughs) It is. Bianca's death is a little ambiguous as well. Like I always joke, like, I don't believe they're dead until I see a body. Yeah. And I Mm -hmm. think he does that with Bianca where it's... It's the jet situation. And also even in the prophecy, it's ambiguous. One will be lost. Is she actually dead or is she just somewhere else? And then we get Zoe at the end where that is for sure like an on-page death. I I think it's interesting how he kind of ramps you up for that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, if we want to keep going, we also finally get to meet Annabeth's mortal family in this book. (sighs) Yes, we do. I hate you, Frederick Chase. <laughs> Burn in hell. <laughs> so we meet Annabeth's dad, stepmom, and very briefly her half siblings when Percy, Talia, Zoe, and Grover, because we have lost Bianca at this point, they are in San Francisco, quite near where they need to go. And they stop. I think it's it's Talia who knows where Annabeth lives, doesn't yeah. it? And they're kind of like, hey, mm-hmm. we've got to go here because we need transportation (laughs) and they stop there and Percy's just like wow these people look really normal I just expected them to be evil because of everything Annabeth has said but they seem pretty average (laughs) they then continue having conversations specifically with Frederick so Annabeth's dad and uh, mention to him the fact that you know his daughter is in trouble and she's in danger and they need to rescue her and they need a way to get there to which he gives them is it his car yeah, yeah yeah and you know he's just like well i hope she gets back safe hopefully she'll be okay 
blah 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 the stepmom's kind of like yeah no that's terrible and then leaves <laughs> <laughs> and yeah so that her dad does come in to help eventually he's got a biplane mm-hmm. and he's filled it with celestial bronze bullets mm-hmm. um from the weapons that annabeth had left behind he's melted them down and turned them into bullets and killed a bunch of monsters, which was really cool. I will admit that was pretty cool. He still sucks as a human being, but yeah. it was a pretty cool moment. They rescue Annabeth, and she has a moment. Well, I say a moment. They have a conversation of a sort. Weirdly, it's a moment where he kind of makes her feel bad because he just briefly mentions, you know, mm-hmm. it was the stuff that you left behind. And mm-hmm. she kind of looks away. And I'm like, why are you looking away? He's the reason you left. Um, sorry, this is I'm gonna chill. <laughs> like, calm down a little bit. And not long after this moment, they are about to head away. And Percy says to Annabeth, "They're not that bad, you know." And I wanted to yeah. pummel him. I let's dig into this also because you're right. But what's interesting to me is the narrative doesn't agree with you. Yes, this is actually the moment I was talking about. This is a good place to kind of bring it full circle. There's two echoes in this book. This Mm. is one of them. Where right at the beginning, you know, there's that scene where Thalia and Annabeth are like, Percy, your mom is so cool. And he's like, yeah, I guess. She's embarrassing, but okay. But we all know, of course, Sally's the best. And then at the end of all of this, when Annabeth's dad saves the day and they end the conversation and leave him, Percy says to Annabeth, your dad's pretty cool. Like, it's almost the exact same language. And it's very clear, like, because what we've gotten from Annabeth's side, at this point is that she felt unwelcome in her mortal family. She felt like her dad was kind of pushing her away. And so was her stepmom. And now he's moved somewhere she could never live. And it's like, how dare he? Like, he doesn't even want to try. And then we get to meet him. And it's like a reversal in the narrative of all of this, these assumptions we've made. And he gets to save the day. And at the end, we get this moment where it's a direct callback to what they said about Sally. I mean, I do think the portrayal is a bit more nuanced. But at the Mm. same time, the narrative is saying that, like, maybe Annabeth's perception of her family isn't the truth. Yeah. Um, I think what's interesting to me is, like, what you said here is, like, the narrative is basically kind of saying in the sense that Annabeth may have been slightly wrong. But then at the same time, the previous narratives have been showing that she's right. She Mm. ran away at seven. Mm -hmm. She went back when she was ten. She had to leave again, went back a second time, had to leave again has gone back a third time prior to the Titan's curse and they've moved somewhere that is so dangerous for her that all the problems that led to having to run away at seven years old will just come again because it's monster central they've moved to. And Mm. she's told her dad, this is like not safe. (laughs) And there's kind of been no compromise or discussion. And I just feel like the narrator has been showing us again and again that her family doesn't try. Annabeth is consistently the one who's reached out. She's the one who's gone back Mm -hmm. twice. She's the one who's called them twice. And then every time she's the one who ends up alone. And Mm -hmm. then we have this book almost completely contradicting it by making it out that the family do care about her, that they do miss it. And this whole, it's just a really weird narrative element. And it's something that I feel like Rick does improve on with the presentation of emotional abuse in the series much later on i know it's a big word but for like the way in which a lot of the stuff that we find out later on from when we get like annabeth's pov in later series Mm. and we learn a lot more of what happened like the gaslighting that did come from her family members to 
the horrific things she was experiencing as a child and then the lack of care about what she was experiencing kind of just kind of come a little bit under emotional neglect and possible Mm. emotional abuse to then having it be this moment here of kind of like Annabeth is again kind of the one offering the olive branch to the family at the end of this book from Percy's comments instead of them because they're still saying hey you know you've got a place here and like yeah but it's a place where she'll die (laughs) gaslighting in particular that you bring up I think is 100% accurate and also it's a very particularly insidious kind of emotional abuse and to me I feel like that almost makes it make a lot more sense Annabeth's reactions to Luke where he'll say these things to her that aren't true and she's kind like I feel like her reaction to them is a lot more strong than most characters which makes sense to me yeah Mm -hmm. I think in her case for Luke as well Luke was the first person who ever truly showed her any kindness yeah yeah so she's more likely to fall into this trap and this is also the additional thing of like Percy knows her relationship with Luke and he just does get mad at her a lot for kind of continuing to try and believe Mm. in Luke and I'm like Percy I know you're a child (laughs) 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 just some emotional intelligence please yeah I think Percy, he often has that issue of, like, he thinks of something a certain way and just cannot fathom thinking of it any other way. Like, he doesn't yeah. have, I guess, some of that empathy that Luke has. But <laughs> yeah. I wonder if seeing this relationship that Annabeth has with her family, he's thinking of it as someone who... I'm I'm trying to defend Percy here, but not really. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's thinking of it as someone who is just getting used to having a home that he can return to that feels semi-safe because he's spent so long with Gabe. And so Mm. coming into a house that, like, you know, it's described as having, like, the smell of cookies being baked and, like, oh, there's kids playing. and Like, it feels comfortable to him. He comes in there and is like, this is sort of the comfort that I was looking for for my whole life until, you know, what, two years ago. Yeah. Not even. It's, it's a combination of the like different life experience and the fact that he always has that problem of not being able to totally see where other people are coming from. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. I think it was um, another person podcast called uh, The Damn Snack Bar. They brought up yeah. this really interesting point of like, I don't know if they brought it up in an episode, if it was just I was just talking to them and they mentioned it. That they don't think Percy's fatal flaw is loyalty. Uh-huh. <laughs> they think it's wrath. Because if you burn him, he will never forgive you. I think that's just a really interesting mm. thing. Of like, if he sees you do one thing wrong, he will never get over that. He will yep. always see you as the villain in his story. And I think that's just a really interesting point. Like, he forms one opinion and sticks with it. Like, yeah. you don't ever really see mm-hmm. him change an opinion of a person. I love that we're talking about this because <laughs> in our first episode, we like immediately were like, that is not his fatal flaw. And we want to figure out what his fatal flaw is over the course of this podcast. And Wrath, I think, is probably a good contender, though. It, I feel like it can definitely be mistaken for personal loyalty in that it's like he feels this intense loyalty to people. And once that's broken, once you do something to break it, it's like immediate rejection of the person. Even though like he had, in the case of Luke, for example, like he does kind of still have these moments of admiring him, but he still does just fully loathe him. Like he could never if Luke changed his mind, fully recognized the errors of his ways and changed and came back and was like, oh my God, I'm, I was wrong. I'm so sorry. I don't think Percy would ever forget. He's the definitely yeah. 
may he may forgive, but he will never forget. And he he's the sort of person who will bring up something that happened a decade ago. Yeah, to start an argument. <laughs> he's that petty bitch. And what's actually interesting is there's a moment in the story where this is the way in which I think he and Thalia are not similar. Mm. Because there's a moment when when Percy in the first chapter, maybe the second chapter, he goes off alone to confront the Manticore, knowing he should wait for backup. But he's like, no, I'm going to try and take back being the main character of this story because I'm feeling kind of hurt about Thalia being the main character of this book right now. Yeah. And... After everything goes down and Annabeth gets kidnapped, Thalia is really blaming Percy for it. And she's like, I can't believe you went off alone. Like, if you hadn't done this, we'd still have Annabeth. But then not even like a uh, hundred pages later. Well, I shouldn't say that. I was listening to the audiobook. I have no idea. <laughs> she actually says to him, like, you know what? Actually, I probably would have done the same thing. So I can't blame you for this. Mm. Percy would never. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah. No, I think it's interesting because a lot of their scenes together are Percy or Thalia either apologizing to the other. Usually it starts with them apologizing to the other because they so easily hurt each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because they're the same person. Like, this is a series full of character parallels, but these two are like the most intentional, yeah. I think. And. In this one, it's like she literally grabs the protagonist role out from under him. As she should. And, <laughs> and it it's it basically ends up being Percy being put in front of a mirror and being forced to, like, over and over throughout the book, attempt to anticipate himself and reckon with himself and appease himself. Mm-hmm. And so they end up having, like, ending up in all of these moments where either their destructive sides ruin each other or they just manage to hit just the right button because they know exactly where they all are. (laughs) It ends in them sort of having these conversations over and over where they come back to each other so easily. They're always having these moments where they hurt each other and then like a couple pages later, they'll come back to each other and apologize. And it ends in them like, you know, usually Thalia telling a secret either on purpose or because Percy can just tell from looking at her something because they just they know themselves and are kind of transparent to each other because of that and so it's sort of like a slow build of that intimacy but yeah it's it's fun to me the way that they maneuver around each other because they're so rarely on good terms but they still you know here comes Percy to climb into Thalia's car when they're in the like is it a train with cars in it or I think it's a car truck like it's a it's a car truck Okay, I couldn't remember what kind of transportation they were on. And there's also the moment where they are getting in the kayaks that they steal. And Thalia comes up to Percy and is like, hey, I'm like way too emotionally drained to deal with Zoe right now. Can you take her? And I I just like, I loved that moment because I was like, they're so rarely on the same page, but they're able to do these things with each other where it's like a level of intimacy that we don't see, like these quieter moments with them, even when they're not on good terms. It does make it sad then to think about the fact that the moment Talia joins the Hunters, she's basically gone from the rest of the series. And this happens so often with the Hunters. And like they're just kind of there to take people and then vanish into non-existence until they're necessary again, which is very (laughs) rarely. And I'm like, why? That's such a cool concept, Rick. Yeah. Percy did not share many secrets. Now that you said that, I'm like, this boy gave nothing in return. He gave nothing, but Thalia gave a lot. So (laughs) Yeah. 
it actually made me think as well of like the last book where he is kind of privy to a lot of very private, very vulnerable moments for both Clarice and Annabeth. And I think in this one, he it's the same thing with Dahlia. And, like and he, Zoe. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But also, the boy's got to share. He shared nothing. No one knows anything yeah. about this boy. <laughs> right. I would love to see a conversation with either Thalia or Annabeth where they actually talk about Luke because Percy was also betrayed by Luke and they just, it's always the girls coming at him and him being like, whatever, and (laughs) brushing it off. Yeah, they do need a proper conversation because I think if he got more information from Annabeth and Thalia about Luke and like maybe what he was like before. Because I think this is the whole thing. I never understood why Percy wouldn't try, and I guess the final floor of wrath. He just didn't want to hear what he was like before because he can't, because all he knows now is this traitor. That's the only important significant thing to remember. Not that he was a good person, not that he could be being manipulated, not that he's had a terrible past. I think you, yeah, I think you've nailed, you, you've circled on something that is interesting now that I'm thinking about it, which I don't think Percy is interested in who Luke is or why he's doing what he's doing. Oh, no, he doesn't. He does not care. But <laughs> Annabeth and Thalia obviously are because they knew a different version of him and they're trying, especially Thalia, I think they're trying to figure out like how this happened. He's a very mm. black and white thinker Yeah. Ad- until much later. And even kind of then, he kind of still sticks a little bit to the black and white way of thinking. This is the whole thing. Percy puts a lot of what he thinks of the world on other people and expects them to act accordingly. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Like, you have to understand that Percy is a biased narrator. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't to a degree. That's fine. (laughs) Okay, getting to the scene at the end when we get to Mount Othrus. First of all, the scene with the dragon and the apples. I'm just imagining Luke returning there because that's where his quest was to. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it made me wonder if, like, this is where it all began. It is. The fact that it's where it all began and it's Thalia and Annabeth and Luke all coming together again. It's, like, kind of bringing it all back to the beginning for him. And that's also this whole part to me is, like, the end of the alternate universe in which this is Thalia's book. Yeah. Like, it's an extension of her beliefs in the diary scene where she says Luke would never betray anyone. I feel like she's still holding on to like, no, like, I can't even reconcile this person you're telling me is Luke with the Luke I know. Yeah, she even has that line earlier in the Grover gets a Lamborghini chapter where she says, Zoe wasn't right. Luke never let me down. Like, even now, she still says that. It's not until she sees Luke in this scene that she fully puts it together that like, this is her friend, Luke her best friend from childhood who is doing all of this i think especially because the first time that she sees him he's got his sword to annabeth's neck again yeah this is the only book to me where i feel like we should see the side of luke that percy sees fully all the time like this version of luke Mm. in his actions is all that percy sees and understands this Mm. is him falling further than he ever has before and it isn't him like it's very out of character for him his one major thing is caring about other people and this was the opposite of that and it's very random and sudden i don't know it just it always read really weird he does defend her still like he doesn't want to kill her like he's okay using her and he's okay hurting her but he still won't kill her because there is that moment after they trap artemis under the sky where the general is saying 
okay, she served her purpose. Let's kill her. And Luke is like, no, no, no. She might still be useful, but you can, the way it's written, it seems like he's just grasping at any reason to keep her alive. Like he doesn't actually want to kill her. Yeah. Yeah. There's kind of a an interesting power shift for Luke because every time that we've seen him until now, he's been in total control of every mm. situation he's in, especially in Sea of Monsters, like we talked about. Oh, yeah. He's got that total confident, like super villain vibe to him, mm. but he's he's totally in control of the entire room in Sea of Monsters. And now there's like a complete shift in that, like in his first scene with the general, he's clearly not in control of that situation. And then every other time that we see him, he's sort of under the thumb of the other people around him. There's that moment at the end. Thalia says, Luke, let her go. Uh, Luke's smile was weak and pale. He looked even worse than he had three days ago in DC. That is the general's decision, Thalia, but it's good to see you again. Everything going on is the general's decision. Everything is in mm. Alice's control at this point, And it's a character dynamic that we haven't seen from Luke yet. Luke has always been in control. And so that's kind of how I've justified his actions, or justified, but uh, understood his actions mm. in this book, in that it's a clear change in mm. how the rest of the Titan army is starting to see him in this series. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah, I think this there's that line at the end where Luke is begging Thalia to join his side because if she doesn't, he will use the other way, in quotes. Yeah. Luke is just like at this point, basically at the mercy of whatever everyone around him wants from him. There's a fear that is now starting to show up from him that we haven't seen before. Then there's also this really interesting part when she's first looking at the Ophiotaurus. She's like hypnotized by the hunger for power. I got to say, I did always feel it was really weird that Talia was tempted so kind of easily. I was surprised that she was able to pull Bessie. I can't say the name. I'm just going to say Bessie <laughs> to them so easily just by like a single temptation. It was like one line tempted her enough to start thinking about Bessie. I just remember thinking, I don't, this doesn't feel that realistic because everything we've seen of Talia, yeah, she's angry at her dad, but not angry enough that she would turn on him so easily and be tempted to join the other side in a single instant. I think something that we talked about in our Luke's Diary episode was the way that Thalia is angry at her dad, but is always searching for a connection with him and some kind of sign from him. Thalia still has that like yearning for a connection with her dad that Luke doesn't have. Mm -hmm. But in I think that's what that moment in the car is supposed to break. And that when the lightning bolt strikes the car, she's now thinking like, oh, my dad actually, that's a sign for my dad and he wants to kill me. And yeah. so it could push her over the edge toward that. I don't think it's enough. But yeah. that I think is what that moment is supposed to be is that like breaking yeah. of the like, oh, I, I actually can't get anything from my dad. Actually, he wants he wants me dead. Yeah. And it's also pretty ambiguous. Like they say like, oh, that's just Kronos messing with you. But can Kronos send lightning bolts like? I mean, who else could have sent a lightning bolt? Well, could have been Atlas because he is the holder of the sky. So he could, like, we don't fully know if he has abilities connected yeah. to that. He could. Maybe Thalia, it ended up being like a self-fulfilling prophecy because Thalia was so anxious that she accidentally summoned a lightning bolt and then decided it's mm. her dad. <laughs> it doesn't read as that unnatural to me that she would consider, though, because I feel like it's impossible not to think about it. Yeah. Although the other thing that's interesting to me about the whole Bessie subplot is that like they keep saying it's connected to Thalia, 
But is it? Isn't it connected to Percy? Yeah, like, but that's what I mean. Like, I think Kronos and Luke and the gods keep saying it's connected to Thalia, but it's been following Percy around the whole time. And Percy's thinking about Bessie and Grover is in Percy's brain going, stop thinking about Bessie, you're summoning her. Oh, so like the whole time it feels like they keep saying like Thalia is the one with the power to summon the beast, but like I'm following Percy around. Hmm. The other thing that also I found to be really interesting in this scene for Percy's doing what he's doing and then he looks over and realizes Thalia and Luke have been sword fighting to the death like this whole time. <laughs> what a fight. Like this moment. In my mind, that is the Agni Kai of the series. <laughs> no, it's, you know what I was actually thinking of is it's like, she says, you aren't Luke. I don't know you anymore to him. And she also says at one point, like, you could never beat me. I thought that was interesting because Percy cannot beat Luke, like, no matter what. Yeah, but it's also the Obi-Wan Anakin vibes of it all, though. <laughs> Just like, you're my brother. I loved you. <laughs> my favorite trope. I know. I <laughs> <laughs> But I was thinking about Luke also having to go get through this scene with Thalia knowing now with the diary in the back of our head, knowing how easy it was for him to go along with anything Thalia said. Like she only needed to say the word and he would do anything that she said in that story. Mm -hmm. And now like seven years later, having to face her again, probably still feeling that tug in his mind of like, I should just do what Thalia wants. (laughs) But it's been long enough that he's kind of been able to, like we said, warp her image in his head to the point where he can kind of get away with it. It reminds me when you were also talking about how in this in this book, it feels like Luke, whatever agency he had is kind of gone. And I feel like that is also a similar thing where he's still saying he's still like, you know, his whole at this point for Luke. He's really relying on, he's trying to convince her. He keeps saying like, there's something else that's going to happen to me if you don't go with me. Yeah, he kind of slips up when she's arguing with him. And, you know, I was thinking about how she could make him do anything in that short story. And he slips up and says, don't make me. And then stops and says, don't make him destroy you. This is like one of the best scenes in this entire series to me this chapter I yeah between like what we just talked about but also Percy being unable to fully narrate through the pain like narrate mm-hmm. clearly because it brought it back to that thing I talked about with the siren scene I love it when Percy has like something that's inhibiting his ability to narrate fully everything that's going on around him you know he's being blinded by the weight of the world on top of his shoulders also a uh, side note while Percy's holding up the sky, he hears Grover through the empathy link saying, fight back, don't give up. And I was like, can you feel this, Grover? <laughs> well, you can probably feel him dying. Yeah, I was like, that's crazy. <laughs> like, are you okay, Grover? I feel the need to point out that Annabeth did hold it longer. Oh, than... she did. Yeah. But yep. no one gives her credit Annabeth for. literally says, she's stronger than you, Percy. Like, don't yeah, do this. she held it for like a day at least. And while we're talking about people who have held the sky on their shoulders, when we talk about the gray streaks, Luke also has them. And more streaks than what they have as well. Yeah. So that means he held it for much longer than any of them combined. Oh, I didn't think about that. I had, I thought of it as just he's weaker than them, so he got, he got more streaks. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if it was like a hazing of some sort to see how strong he could be. And that's why mm-hmm. he's so exhausted. 
throughout every time they see him is because of how long he had to hold it to prove that he could do what he has to do in the next book. Hmm. But he didn't expect how intense it would be, which is why he looks like he's starting to kind of question in this book because he wasn't expecting things to be so difficult <laughs> um, and so draining on him as, as a human being. So I think he held it for a lot longer than kind of we realize. Because mm-hmm. he definitely had to hold it until they brought Annabeth there because Atlas was out and free. <laughs> That's true. And he mentions that Luke also came up with the idea of trapping Annabeth. Because weren't they supposed to get someone else? They were there to get... Uh... Well, it's implied they were there to get Thalia, but I think they were there to get Bianca and Nico. I don't know. Because I don't know if they knew that they were children of the big three. It is funny that they had four children of the big three and they got the one who wasn't. Who also ended up being stronger than them. Yeah. She is stronger than a kid of the big three. This is why I say Annabeth is the strongest demigod. Annabeth is the strongest demigod. She's the most powerful demigod. Even with no powers, she's Mm -hmm. the strongest Mm -hmm. demigod. That is the most cold-blooded moment in this entire series, is Luke tricking Annabeth into taking the sky. I half wonder it was a part of the hazing, just because I mentioned the hazing now. He had to show that he didn't care for Annabeth, for her Mm. to maybe live. And there's an interesting, this is, I remember I mentioned there are two echo moments in this book. This is the other one. After Artemis takes the weight of the sky from Annabeth, Atlas says to Luke, oh, we should kill her. She's no longer useful. And Luke is basically like, she, she'll, she'll remain useful. It's fine. And then there's a moment where Thalia is trying to kill Luke. And Annabeth says, no, no, he's still, he might still be useful. Like she says the almost the exact same yeah. thing to save his life. And then I just wrote in my notes. I wrote that down and then I next notice and then Thalia kicks him off a cliff. I can't I she thinks that she just killed her best friend. Like how do you move on from that? That's But that to me is like again, it feels very similar to Percy because, you know, she immediately so switch is flipped and now she's like, No, you're not my friend anymore, you're a traitor. I also want to touch on one little thing, which is that at one point Annabeth's like, Oh, Luke is still alive, I just know. And Percy like literally thinks to himself like like i just know with grover with the empathy link there's the empathy link as it's introduced in the series but i feel like there is a lot of like ties no that's true because there's also when they meet annabeth in luke's diary luke can sense that someone is there but thalia can't and so there's Mm. like there literally is a, a strange connection between luke and annabeth they've got their own weird little empathy link from the moment that they meet I was going to say, just a connection to that point, just because there is also the additional fact of um, Percy doesn't like the fact that Annabeth says that it's also how Percy knew she was alive after she went yeah. over the cliff. And he was like, oh, no, I don't like that because I don't like being connected because <laughs> it's for different reasons. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was telling that Annabeth came out of that experience with Luke even more adamant that Luke was in trouble because she had been there for days just sitting there. The only thing she's able to do is like watch and wait. And maybe try to talk Luke out of it. I would imagine she would do that if they hadn't, like, gagged her early on. It either says to me that Annabeth is that deep under Luke's spell and that she, like, he can do anything and she still, like, doesn't blame him for anything. Or she, like, heard and saw things on that mountain that have confirmed for her, yes, Luke is in trouble. Like, all that we've seen is all that Percy's gotten to see, which is what was in those dreams. And those out of context are obviously terrible. (laughs) This is why people need to talk. <laughs> if he'd asked yeah, her what it's... she'd seen, maybe he'd know. <laughs> yeah, but you need to talk about why Annabeth still feels like that. <laughs> so at the end of this scene, Zoe has been injured by her father. 
And Artemis picks her up, puts her in her chariot, and they're like, okay, let's get out of here. And I wanted to point out a line here because this, to me, is where the tone shift that we've been talking about is completed. Like there's a moment that signals we are now past the point of no return to me. And it's a joke that Percy makes. He climbs into Artemis's chariot and murmurs just to himself, like still dazed with pain, that it's like Santa Claus's sleigh. And it's a joke that in any other context, like in any moment before this one, might have been funny. But here it's the first that we've heard in pages. And all it does is emphasize that Percy is still a child. That he's mm. too, he's just too young to have just experienced the scene that we just read. His first thought is Santa Claus still. Mm. Every time I read it, I like, I can't read that line as a joke. So to me, it's like right here, the tone has officially shifted and we don't live in the same world anymore. There's definitely a sort of secondary element to that as well of like, we've not had, oh, Santa is actually real happen in Percy Jackson. Like he's still a mythological figure that mm -hmm. can't bring any pain into the lives of these children where myths are real and cause real trauma, real pain and permanent damage. Santa Claus is still a childhood fantasy and that's all they kind of have left. An extra layer to it was that once Percy says that, Artemis says like, yeah, where do you think that myth came from? And I was like immediately telling him that Santa Claus is not real. <laughs> like <laughs> Immediately <laughs> yeah. breaking that myth. It's like, no, we are not in that kind of world anymore. Mm. Then we get our first actual on-screen death. And also <sighs> Zoe says something. We, we haven't talked a lot about Zoe in her past, actually. but um, We haven't. <laughs> Sorry, Zoe. <laughs> Zoe Nightshade, who's Artemis's lieutenant, she's implied over the course of the series of the book to be super old yeah. um, because hunters are immortal. And then we find out that she was one of the Hesperides. They live in the garden with the dragon that guards the tree with the golden apples, and they're the children of Atlas, the titan. It's revealed in a dream that Percy has where he is Hercules, that the reason why she's no longer with her sisters is she helped Hercules steal a golden apple and was exiled from her family because of it, and so found a new family with the hunters of Artemis. And yeah, Hercules is also a really interesting character in the context of Greek mythology, because a lot of Greek heroes are and a lot of myths actually are site specific and they're based around very specific places that are named in the myths and so a lot of the greek towns and places throughout would have very specific uh, stories and myths and legends and heroes that were tied to that location but hercules is sort of a catch-all where a lot of places claim lay claim to hercules because he travels around a lot and does a lot of deeds in a way that kind of like odysseus does but also, like, the origin of his name is really interesting, too, because it, in a sense, means just means hero, um, if you go all the way back in the etymology. And so he's kind of a composite, probably, of a lot of local myths. It's interesting, though, that one of the last things Zoe says to Percy is that he's nothing like Hercules. Hmm. Okay, the group heads up to Olympus. Poseidon, we get a Poseidon cameo and a Zeus cameo. So I guess technically all of the gods were in this book. But this book is also where Athena tells Percy what his fatal flaw is. Um, yeah, which we And said, she's wrong. She's wrong. always <laughs> right. It's wrath. He's a wrathful little bitch. I did write in my notes, though, like, oh, oh my God, I almost forgot about Nico. <laughs> <laughs> Just like you almost forgot about Luke in the first book. <laughs> 
that one the narrative lulled me this time i did almost actually forget about nico i still can we talk about how shit chiron is for letting (laughs) a 13 year old boy deal with the emotional trauma he's about to deliver to a 10 year old instead of this thousand year old (laughs) centaur do it himself when he's the one in charge chiron makes so many there's another quote he wrote down where he says like after nico runs off chiron's like well better that he be well i hope he gets eaten by a monster better that than (laughs) army it's like dude Kyron always does everything in his power to avoid any kind of conflict with anyone. Like, that's half the reason he doesn't tell Percy anything is because he's like, I don't want to deal with that. (laughs) Yeah. I would like to say that even though Tantalus was a bad guy, at least he made his intentions clear. Kyron Mm. pretends to be a good guy, but he's actually letting children die. (laughs) But uh, Percy does have to tell him that his sister is dead. And Nico obviously doesn't react well. He's also the one that confirms for sure, for sure, she's dead. He definitely has the most interesting relationship to death in this series. Yeah. No, I think this moment at the end when we find out that Nico and Bianca were children of Hades finishes off this theme throughout the book of like dead things coming back. The first mention of it is Tyson mentions that old sea spirits have begun waking up and causing trouble. Mm-hmm. And then there's the skeleton soldiers that stalk Percy throughout the book. There's Thalia herself rising from the dead. There's the Oracle, who is a corpse, <laughs> walking through mm-hmm. the forest and then speaking her prophecy. It's like it it adds to this feeling of the idea that something really is stirring and that everything that you feel safe from right now will not stay dead for long and that we're just kind of waiting on Kronos. And so finding out now these characters who we've been with throughout the book this whole time were children of Hades, like Lord of the Dead, really kind of rounds out that like general haunted vibe that we've had <laughs> throughout this throughout this book. I almost said the season one day. <laughs> <laughs> The last kind of thing that I wanted to talk about very briefly, since we've been talking about like Percy versus Thalia as protagonists, Mm -hmm. is the moment at the very end of this book where Percy says, I choose the prophecy, it will be about me. Like until this point, he's just kind of been forced into this role of being the child of the prophecy and also like hasn't really been the main character in his story, even though he has been the child of the prophecy. And at this point, it is Percy basically choosing protagonist status. I thought that was so interesting because there have been so many questions raised about like fate and prophecy and like all of the links between them and like what is inevitable and what is not, you know, do you have agency in a world where fate, the fates exist? And I think this is him kind of finding a way to finally take that. He's realizing he can actively choose to be the person the prophecy is about and take it back as opposed to wait around to see who it ends up being. Okay, so to finish us off, I have a question that I ask every week, which is, uh, in this book, there actually isn't a camp bead given to symbolize the events of the book because it's winter. So if you two were to design the bead based on what feels important to you from this book, what would you put on it? I would put stars for Zoe. Hmm. I like that. Yeah. I think for me... I, I kind of want to give it to the that like sacrificial fire that appears when uh, mm. they're supposed to be sacrificing Bessie just mm-hmm. because of, I don't know, symbolically sacrifice and death. And <laughs> it's interesting because this is the first time I think the scene I most think about from this book isn't what I feel like actually should be the bead. 
because the one I always come back to is Talos. I just, there's something about that scene aesthetically that just, I just think about it all the time. Like when I think about this book, I think about that scene, but I don't think that's the bead. I think if I had to give a bead, it would probably be Annabeth holding the sky. Yeah. <laughs> just a very small portrait of Annabeth holding the sky. Yeah. She deserves it. No one draws art of her holding the sky. <laughs> It's I have. Personally. I'm gonna do it again <laughs> this time, but I I did like years ago. I'm gonna redraw it for this episode. There's something about that Talos scene. I don't know why. It just gets me. Just do the Hades figurine then. It symbolizes multiple things. Yeah, I think it's the Hades with the magic figurine. Thank you all for listening to Monster Donut. Thank you, Fran, for joining us this time. <laughs> this was amazing. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Tell us where we can find you and plug all of the things. So you can find me at social media at a dose of Fran on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. You can find my podcast, The Best Damn Camp, wherever you listen to podcasts. It's damn spelt the way it is in the Titans Curse because that is the only joke that is valid in this series. <laughs> um, <laughs> at Best Damn Camp Pod on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, my YouTube channel is A Healthy Dose of Fran. I have videos out every week. Um, I don't know when this episode is coming out, but there is a uh, fundraising live stream on the 21st of December. It'll be after that, unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> well, then, then they can go donate afterwards, so it's fine. It'll be available okay. to watch after, mm. <laughs> so they can donate later. And you can buy my debut novel, Home to the Wild, wherever you get books, or go to the library. Libraries are also uh, things to support me and your local library. Hmm. <laughs> If you like the chronological concept for this podcast, Fran does a much better job of it. <laughs> so you should go over to the best Tam camp, hear it actually in chronological order. <laughs> yes, it's all in timeline order, which is really hard because the timeline makes no fucking sense. So it's trying to figure out what goes where. Um, so yeah but it's fun um, and if you want to find out why I'm the most hated Percy Jackson podcaster you can <laughs> right we know you're curious <laughs> so as for us as always you can find us at pjopod on twitter instagram and tiktok and you can find the time lapse of the drawings that I made in the creation of this episode <laughs> on my youtube channel which is pajoco p-h-o-j-o-c-o and you can also email us with any of your thoughts at monsterdonutpodcast at gmail.com I think that's it. Uh, next time we'll be mm. reading Battle of the Labyrinth, which I haven't read in a hot minute, so I'm very excited. I for haven't that. either. Thank you, Fran, again. Um, bye, everyone. Yeah, <laughs> bye. <laughs> bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
it. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.